Well, let's read Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking to the word, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them was named Agabus. Uh, One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined... Every one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it by, or to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. I have a simple observation that I want to make throughout this passage. And I think this is a very encouraging passage for us as believers because we are Gentile believers. We are people that are not traditionally Jewish, but we are those who have been kind of, as it says in Romans 11, grafted in. We had, we had no promises of God, but the promises have come to us through the preaching of the gospel. And this is a passage that shows how the gospel has gone out to Gentiles who weren't expecting it, planning on it, anticipating it, awaiting it, but the gospel came to them all the same by the grace of God. So this passage has a lot to show us. In fact, I would say I have a simple observation in this entire passage. It's this, the gospel advances among the Gentiles the same way it advanced among the Jews. There, there's no difference. There's a lot of similarities to be seen in the way that the gospel advances among the Gentiles. So here you go in your, in your simple statement there. The gospel advances the same way it always does. There is nothing special about the way it advanced among the Jews versus the way it advanced among the Gentiles. There are many of the same things that happen among the Gentiles as happen among the Jews. And so let's break this down a little bit by a few points, and you'll see this very easily, I think, and it's very encouraging to me. We'll attach our thoughts to this idea of sameness. How is the gospel advancing in the same way? And from these thoughts, I hope to to produce some helpful applications and encouragements to you. First off, the gospel, it advances by or with the same sovereign grace. 
I don't know about you, but probably you're getting really tired of taking notes from me because I'm always starting. Point number one has something to do with sovereign grace because it's hard to see the storyline of Scripture outside of the sovereign grace of God. I'm not really serious. I never get tired of talking about the sovereign grace of God. But have you noticed that? That we're always talking about God's sovereign grace and power. And that's what we see even here with the disciples in Antioch. Of course, the gospel is spreading in verse 19. It is increasing in all seasons. We see that the gospel increases in times of peace, like what we see in 931. It says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Right? The gospel increases in times of peace, but it also increases and multiplies and spreads through God's sovereign grace in times of pain and difficulty and trial. And that's what we see here in verse 19, right? We're we're returning to this familiar scene and situation of the the persecution that started with the martyrdom of Stephen. You remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He was the first church martyr. And that caused in chapter 8 and 9 the church to be scattered all throughout Samaria and Judea and all the, the areas around Israel of that day. And we see here in chapter 11 that that scattering also went as far as Phoenicia, which is just the northern coastline above Israel on the Mediterranean Sea, and then Cyprus is that island, just right off of where Antioch is, and and Antioch is up there on the coast, too, of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, Of course, once again, north of Israel. The gospel is spreading, right? And it's spreading to all people, all kinds of Jews. First we see, uh, we see verse 19, they spread, speaking the word, to none except Jews. But we also see that there are some here, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, that spread it to Gentiles as well. That word Hellenist refers to uh, people that speak Greek. And, and by contrast, we see these are people that are not Jews. These are Gentiles who speak Greek, who maybe weren't expecting or looking for a Messiah. As a matter of fact, you see here that they preach. They don't preach necessarily that Jesus is the Messiah, but they preach that Jesus is the Lord. That's a very interesting phrase. They preach Christ as Lord. Jesus is Lord of the entire earth, and that's who they preach to these men here in Antioch. And of course, this is what we we saw last time when we saw that the, the gospel officially transferred over to the Gentiles. We saw in chapters 10 all the way through chapter 11, we see this just um, this deep explanation of how the gospel was going to the Gentiles. The Jews did not think this was going to happen. They thought the Gentiles were unclean people, but the Lord showed Peter through a vision and then through this interaction with a centurion by the name of Cornelius that the gospel was meant for all kinds of people. And that's what we saw. It was glorious. It was wonderful. And just to remind you, look at Acts chapter 11, verse 18. This is, this is the statement that links our passage with the previous one. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's the gospel message, right? It's, it's a message of life. It's a, it's a message that you don't have to go the way you're going anymore. You can turn to God and be saved and have what? Life. 
life. That is the gospel message in Jesus Christ. And this message goes to all people. And here, the gen- and here we see this passage is not necessarily a response to the previous passage. It seems to also kind of happen like at the same time. This isn't, this isn't the gospel going to Antioch by the, by the church, by the, the leadership of Peter or James or John or anything like that. It almost seems as though this kind of happens at the same time. We see God's sovereign grace at work, right? Uh, because these men in verse 20 speak the good news of Jesus as Lord to the Hellenists in Antioch. This is the Lord Jesus Christ building his church, and the church is kind of like sprinting to keep up. That's the picture that we see here in this chapter. Now, a little bit of background information about Antioch. Antioch was one of the biggest cities in the ancient world. It was the third biggest city after Rome and Alexandria. It had 600,000 people at the height of its population. 25,000 of those people would have been Jews, but it was mainly a Gentile city. Matter of fact, it seems uh, the more I read about ancient cities, the more they all seem to have the same problems. But this city also was known for its immorality and for its idolatry and for its loose living. It was, it was a melting pot of culture, so to speak. So a lot of different people from a lot of different countries came to Antioch because it was such a big, important commercial hub. It was a cosmopolitan center, uh, meaning a lot of different cultures kind of mixed in here at Antioch. So it was, it was a place of, of loose living, you could say. It was a place of idolatry. There were temples throughout it. Matter of fact, even some of the ancient Roman writers would, would talk about Antioch as a place of evil. And immorality. Uh, There's this one uh, poet who wrote about how the the river that comes from Antioch empties out into the Mediterranean and basically infects Rome. So the the Roman people saw Antioch even as a place of immorality, and and that was a result of idolatry and all these other things. So this is a big city. It's a thriving city, and it's maybe a place that surprises us that the gospel would go there. But this is exactly the message of the gospel, that it saves sinners. We also notice something else about God's grace here in this passage. God's grace advances the gospel message, not necessarily through the, the church's plans or schemes, but through no names. Look at that. The word of God advances among the Gentiles through certain men, not named, just random people. God's grace is is powerful, and he spreads the message of Jesus through these random, faithful men from Cyprus and Cyrene. That's very interesting to me. Um, But this is all just a testimony of God's grace and God's sovereign grace that we see here in this passage. Notice these men speak the good news, but we also see that the Lord Jesus Christ is behind it, continuing to do his work on earth. Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord was with these men as they spoke the good news of the gospel. And as it says in verse 24, the Lord added the lord added many a great many people were added to the lord here from antioch right this is the work of the lord not the work of men it's not necessarily by the scheme of the jerusalem church it's not by the plan of the jerusalem church but it's clearly by the plan of the lord jesus christ 
I, I, I appreciate this because it continually reminds me that I am a servant in the hands of a great and wonderful master who is continuing his work. Even today, he is continuing his work. But I want you to notice one more thing about God's sovereign grace here in Antioch. Notice how Luke summarizes it all. And this is where I get this idea of God's grace. This man Barnabas is sent to Antioch to see what's going on there at the church. And verse 23 says, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. Notice all of this, this turning to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, this amazing work of Christ's continued work among the Gentiles, all is described as the grace of God. And that is the same grace that saves all who come to Jesus, right? All are saved by sovereign grace of Christ, the grace of God. That's what we see. The gospel isn't dependent on our plans, on our purposes, on our schemes, on our powers, but on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we see. But this leads us to the next interesting similarity and and, and quality of this church in Antioch. The gospel advances by the sovereign grace of God and also with the same qualified gifts, the same qualified gifts. You see here that as the church is established, at the same time, God, the Lord Jesus Christ, raises up men to lead the church. We see Barnabas comes from Jerusalem. He's really the perfect man. To, to help lead and shepherd this church. He's from Cyprus himself, and he is a man of generous spirit. Um, but just the idea of Christ giving gracious gifts, I want to point out something. And this is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul urges the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? We see all throughout the letter to the Ephesians that the, the believers... Have a, have a rich and, and, and wealthy calling. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the spiritual places. And in, as a response to that rich, wonderful calling that we've received in Christ Jesus, we are to, it says in Ephesians 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, which belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But then, he says, you were all called in unity in one, but God has ordained that we are built up with the grace of God in gifts given to Christ, or given by Christ to the church. It says in verse 7 of Ephesians 4, grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And then it says down in verse 11 of Ephesians 4, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Notice what happens when, when, when a church is planted by the Lord Jesus Christ, he also gives it qualified, gracious gifts in leadership. And this is what we see. We see this first off in Barnabas and then, of course, in Saul as they both come and join and shepherd the church. By the way, Barnabas is one of my favorite characters in Acts. I, I just can't get enough of looking at the man Barnabas. He is, once again, the perfect man for this ministry. He is from Cyprus. He's from that area himself, but he also is a man of amazing generosity. The Spirit is, uh, is at work in him, 
We saw in the early church days, back in Acts 4, how it was Barnabas himself who sold a field that belonged to him to provide for his fellow believers in Jerusalem. It was Barnabas himself who did that. He, he sold something to provide for the needs of others. And he also had this generous spirit about him towards other people in his life. He was the one that initially, when, when Saul was converted, we saw in Acts 9, he, when the rest of the Jerusalem apostles were nervous about Paul, as they rightly should have been, he's the one that got to know Saul and brought him into the Jerusalem church. He was a man of generous spirit. He was, it says here, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He believed in God's ability to change and transform people. And he was, he was willing to believe in God's mighty hand. And it says here, Luke gives us a reason for why he was this way in verse 24. He was a good man. It's the only time in Acts that somebody is described as a good man, and Barnabas himself gets that title. He was a good man. He was a man who was glad to see God's work advance in people, right? It didn't matter who you were, where you came from, what your back, background was. A man like Barnabas is glad to see Christ's work advance among you. He doesn't have any jealousy or anything like that. He wants to see Christ's name be great and glorified. That is who Barnabas is, a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And notice also, we see in verse 25 and verse 26, he not only knows where to serve, he also has this mind to see where other people should serve too. What a gift, right? What a gift to the church to say, I, I know where I can serve, but also I know where you could be useful in the church. That is a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, full of belief and faith in God and Christ Jesus. And this is what we see. The Lord Jesus Christ gives gracious, qualified, wonderful gifts to the local church. That is a gracious thing from Christ indeed. This is a third connection we see to the early church and this Gentile mission. Not only, right, does, he, does the gospel advance by the same sovereign grace with the same qualified gifts, but we also see it's through the same suffering. The church in Antioch suffers for the gospel the same way that the church in Jerusalem suffered for the gospel as well. And this is how Christ Jesus actually advances his gospel message. Uh, Luke makes this note there at the very end of verse 26, a very interesting historical note to us, because this is our title, right? It was here in Antioch where followers of Jesus were first called Christians. They weren't always called Christians. Before this, they were called uh, followers of the Nazarene or followers of the way. But they weren't called Christians until the gospel advanced to Antioch. Now, now why is this? Why, why is this? This is more than likely a name that's given to Christians by Gentiles and unbelievers that are trying to mock Christians. They're trying to refer to those uh, Christians or followers of Jesus as those people belonging to the party of Jesus or, or those people that are constantly talking about this Christ, right? Now, this wouldn't have been a name given to to the church by Jews because they never would have wanted to link Jesus' name with the name Christ. Why? 
Well, Christ was, remember, the, the Jewish name for the Messiah, the one that they hoped in. And they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah or the Christ at all, right? So this is probably, this is probably Gentile unbelievers trying to mock Christians and saying, you just belong to, belong to that Christ uh, man. And they're probably confusing um, this title for Christ with uh proper name. That's also very interesting as well. We see this exact kind of derision kind of played out in the other places in the New Testament where the name Christian is referenced. Uh, Christian actually isn't a name very common in the New Testament. We're always talking about ourselves as Christians now, but in the New Testament, notice it is only in places where People are being mocked, like in this passage, for example, or in 1 Peter 4.16, Peter says this, If any of you suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but glorify God in that name, right? You are going to suffer as a Christian. That means people are using the name Christian to mock you, to try to separate you and make you feel, you know, um, little, small, uh, silly, we also see in Acts twenty six twenty eight Agrippa, uh, King Agrippa, another Herod, uh, not the same one as we'll see here in Acts twelve. King Agrippa the second, really, uh, he he kind of mocks Paul and saying, "Hey, in, in such a little bit of time, are you going to turn me into a Christian?" So this name was really originally intended by the people who coined it to probably be. Uh, a form of mockery, right? Trying to trying to intimidate and and make you feel less. But but we see here that the Christians seem to gladly accept it, and that's what we see in the New Testament. That's why we gladly claim it ourselves, right? Um, what the world thinks is a disadvantage being linked to Christ, we see as the greatest advantage, the greatest mercy, the greatest gift being linked to Christ and the gracious gift that we receive in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot believe that we get to be called Christians and suffer for the name of Jesus. That is something that we are not worthy of, to suffer for his name. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. But let's look at another um, contrast and comparison between the Jerusalem church and the Gentile church in Antioch. Um, Not only does the gospel advance by the same sovereign grace, with the same qualified gifts, through the same suffering, but also with the same generous fruit. It produces the same generous fruit. And what I mean by that is the, the same generosity of spirit that we see in Barnabas, that we saw in the, in, the, in the early church in the days of Acts 2 and Acts 3 and Acts 4, we see the same generous spirit, the fruit of the spirit, produced in this church as well. We see this prophet comes from Jerusalem um, to Antioch. His name is Agabus. We'll see him very later on in the account of Acts. But his purpose here is to kind of foretell something foretell by the Spirit in verse 28 that there would be a great famine. Now, it's very interesting. There were famines all over the place in these days. The 40s, the 80s, 40s were a time of famine. Every other year, you had a food shortage. Every other year, something was going wrong. So it's kind of hard for historians to really pinpoint when this was, even with the the location marker of the days of Claudius. That still is very hard. But, but it should just tell us that Even in this, right, God provides for his church, for his people, by raising up other people within the church who have means to share with one another. This church in Antioch has a generous spirit because we see in verse 29, 
The disciples determined every one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, right? Now I just want just, to just kind of remind you of something and, and point out a very ironic, sweet, and wonderful contrast that we see in the gospel of Jesus Christ and how the gospel totally transforms people, right? Do you remember Acts, you know, 10, <laughs> 9... <laughs> You remember, remember, like, for two chapters, we're talking about, man, should we eat at the same table as Gentiles? Right? That, that was the question for two whole chapters, going back and forth and back and forth. The Jews are wondering, should we have fellowship, table fellowship, with Gentiles? They're unclean, according to our man-made traditions. Should we, should we be with them? But notice how God's grace has transformed everything. Jewish believers here who were at one point reluctant to share a table with Gentile believers now are having their tables filled and provided for by those same Gentile believers. The gospel totally transforms everything. Uh, God's grace humbles us, right? It humbles our prejudice by seeing God's grace so powerfully at work in people that we thought were so different from us and, and unclean. No, God's grace is wonderful and it spreads to all kinds of people and it totally transforms former enemies into, into wonderful, sweet, dear, unified fellow believers. Or to say it like this, right? The gospel makes you into a generous person. Why? Well, well, we, we get a hint of this in 2 Corinthians, in fact. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 8. Paul says this, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The Lord Jesus Christ put aside the outward manifestation of his glory, the claim he had to be worshipped by all, to put on the form of a servant, to humble himself to death so that we might be rich in him. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That transforms your heart. Those people that I used to be stingy with, I can be stingy with no more because Christ's grace has so transformed me. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ makes you into a Barnabas, right? One who is eager to share with your fellow believers who are in need. Because you know how the Lord Jesus Christ has shared so much with you. And we see the same fruit of generosity in the Antioch church is the exact same fruit of generosity that we saw in the early church way back there in, in Acts 4 when Barnabas was sharing his land. Notice, notice God is working the same way through the Jerusalem church as now he's working in the Antiochian church. Let's look at another comparison. The, the gospel advances with the same unstoppable force. There is the same power here. It's the same Lord uh, working, continuing to work in his church. We see this in verse 29, and I want you to take it all in, so I'll read it one more time. Verse 29 of chapter 11. So the disciples determined every one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas 
and Saul. Not only, notice this, I want you to see another amazing, marvelous work of the transforming grace of Jesus Christ. Not only are Gentiles sharing with Jews, filling their table, but also notice the very instrument that is used to bring provision and care to the Jerusalem church. The hand of Saul. Remember Saul's hands? Do you remember him? Do you remember back in chapter 8 when Saul uh, was ravaging the church like a wild predator? Or in Acts chapter 9 verse 2 when he's seeking letters from the synagogue at Damascus to also bring Christians there bound to Jerusalem? Saul was constantly laying his hands on Christians to destroy the work of Christ. He was trying to stop Christ's continued work on earth. But now look at this. The church of Jesus Christ is provided for by the very same hands that once sought to destroy them. That is the power of God's saving, transforming grace in someone's life. And this just shows us the very unstoppable force and power that is behind Christ's work, right? And we, to go back to it, right, the, the title of Acts is, is given many titles, right? And we've talked about this many a time. Uh, some people want to say it's Acts of the Apostles, right? Some people want to say it's Acts of the Holy Spirit. Some people want to say it's Acts of the Father. Some people want to say it's Acts of, the, of Jesus Christ. It probably is all of those things, but primarily it's Acts, the continued Acts of the risen Christ as he continues his work. That's what the whole point of the book has been so far, right? Luke starts out the book of Acts by saying what Jesus continued to do. Of course, through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit, according to the plan of God the Father. This is the continued works of Jesus. And as we saw in the Gospel of Luke and in all the Gospels, right, Jesus' work is unstoppable. What he plans and what he purposes will come to pass. Or you could say it this way, in application form, the safest place, the very safest place for you to be in this world is in the church of Jesus Christ because Christ will build his church and nothing will stop his work through the church in this world. The very safest place that you can be in the world is in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a caveat there, right? Uh, the church is the safest place in the world for Christians to be. But it's a very unsafe place for unbelievers to hang out in, right? It's a very unsafe place for Christians who want to hang on to their sin. We saw that in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. But we should be encouraged by the simple fact that the safest place is in the work of Jesus Christ, in the church, in this world, right? It is unstoppable. Now, to make this point, we don't just see this point by the fact that God has now transformed the life of Saul from a persecutor of the church to a provider of the church. That, we see that point there. But I want to show you this point also in just the way Luke outlines the book of Acts right here. Notice. The Gentile church in Antioch is pleased to provide for the church in Jerusalem. And they send it, verse 30, by the hands of Saul and Barnabas. And then Acts chapter 12 happens, and we see kind of this extended parenthesis where we hear about Herod the king 
trying to destroy the church in Jerusalem. Again, he, he arrests Peter, locks him in jail. All this stuff happens that are really incredible and cool. I don't want to tell you because we're going to talk about it next week. But we get to the end. We get to the end of Acts chapter 12. And what do we see? Herod, who was once glorious, is dead. Peter, who was once imprisoned, is free. And the gospel we see in verse 24, the word of God is increasing and multiplying. And notice verse 25, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose name was Mark. Notice, Luke continues the story of Paul and and Saul and Barnabas as if nothing happened. Well, there's just this little thing that happened in the middle. It was kind of like King Herod trying to take out the entire um, Christian belief in Jerusalem. But in the broader scheme of things, nothing happens. Nothing slows down. It's just a little parenthesis. Oh, yeah, there was this guy who thought he was great. His name was Herod. He tried to stop the work of Jesus in Jerusalem. Yeah, he died from worms. That's all. And the work of Jesus Christ continued as if nothing happens. But Acts chapter 12 is is for next time. We'll try to save it there. I want to show you one more final kind of parallel between the work of Jesus Christ in the Gentile church, in the church that's our church, and the work of Jesus Christ in the early Jewish church. This is kind of the means... This is, this is my favorite point of the entire um, section here that we're in. This is the means that Christ ordains for the church to be so powerful, for the church to so turn the world upside down. This is the means that Christ ordains for us to be powerful in Christ Jesus. And we find this also with the Gentiles. It's the final point here. The gospel advances through the same continued devotion. Through the same continued devotion. All throughout Acts, Luke has been trying to impress us, impress us by, uh, not, not necessarily by the natural uh, ability of the church. They, they, are, they are believers who are full of the Holy Spirit and emboldened that way. He's trying to impress us with the, the simple formula of the effective, dynamic multiplying and increasing church of God. And this would be a very encouraging point to us. Very encouraging. Because this isn't an amazing formula that we cannot attain to. This is something that we can pursue every single Sunday that we gather together. It's the same continued devotion. Matter of fact, just to emphasize this point, way back in Luke chapter 2, Luke outlines for us this this day in the life of the early church in, in Luke two forty two all the way through 47. And the formula is very simple, right? Every day or, or daily they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of the bread, and to prayers, right? And then, and then in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, it says, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice, what is the early church doing? The early church is continually devoting themselves to learning truth and loving one another. That is what the church is constantly doing. And we see this also pick up in Acts 6, verse 7. The word of God continues to increase, and the number of the disciples multiply greatly. We see that the the word of God, the work of God increasing, is really the word of God increasing in our lives. And as it increases in our lives... 
we tell others and it spreads that way. And we also see this idea all the way in Acts chapter 9. These are the, the, the repeated phrases that Luke uses to move forward the, the, the storyline in Acts. And it's here to tell us just a simple, simple, basic encouragement. Acts chapter 9, verse 31, the church throughout all Judea and, and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Notice, how does the church multiply? By gathering together weekly to be instructed, to be exhorted, to be encouraged. Walking in the fear of the Lord, helping one another walk in the fear of the Lord, and helping one another walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplies. The formula of the church is very simple. It's continual devotion to the Word of God and devotion to one another. And that's, that's what Acts is just trying to tell us. All Acts long, he's simply repeating this same phrase. The church was together, and that is how they grew in boldness, and that is how they grew in gospel clarity, and that is how they were able to spread the word to the watching world. As we see in chapter 12, verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. What? How? through the continued devotion of the church to the truth and the continued devotion of the church to one another. We see this also, one more verse here in Hebrews chapter 9, chapter 10, verse 23. The writer of the Hebrews says this, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Verse 23, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have this great confidence, let us do all of these things. And then he says in verse 25, how do we do these things? We do these things by meeting together. We stir one another up by meeting together. Verse 25 says this, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. It may not seem very spectacular in your mind to come to church on Sunday and to hear God's word and to receive it with an eager heart, a willing heart wanting to be transformed and changed wanting to think clearer about the gospel message. But it is a world-changing event that we participate in every single Sunday that we come here. This is what Luke tries to encourage us in. And as Hebrews 10 would tell us, we meet together for gospel clarity. We meet together for endurance, to encourage one another. And we meet together to encourage one another's clear sight of the end. Let's not give up doing good. But let's encourage one another all the more as we see that day drawing near. That is the quote-unquote secret of the early church. It wasn't anything spectacular. It was simply that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to one another. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this message. We thank you for the blessing of it. And we pray that we would be strengthened and encouraged for your work and for your ministry through it. I pray that our lives would be increasingly simple that we continue to orient our lives around the hearing of your word and the loving of one another and seeking to upend and turn over the world through that marvelous grace that we're given. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.